In the intensive care unit waiting room at the hospital, you will find people who are anguished and dealing with hard questions. Will my son walk again? How, how does one live after losing their companion of up to 30 years? Will he make it? It's funny, the, the world changes in that waiting room. Things that would normally divide people seem to evaporate, disappear. The black man and the white man and the Indian person all root for one another. The college professor and the garbage man recognize that, that they both love their wives. Everybody does everything they can to, to help one another. No, nobody's rude. Everybody seems to be on uh, the edge of their seat, anticipating the next doctor's report. Everyone hoping that it's good. In, in that waiting room, one thing becomes clear to everyone within. That relationships of love are what life is all about. The Christian life is all about love. Namely, love for God and love for neighbor. That's going to be Paul's primary point in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and it's the main idea that I've put on your insert this morning, that the Christian life is all about love. And then the exhortation is fairly simple and follows it. Uh, be the church love. I exhort you to love God and one another. I'm going to pray, uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll get into the text a little bit. We're actually only going to do, you have three parts there, the necessity of love, the supremacy of love, and the character of love. And we're actually only going to deal with the first two today. Next week, we're going to talk about the character of love. Uh, ask questions like, what is love and how does it act? Uh, but this week we're just going to talk about the first two, and the reason those two go together is because Paul is going to contrast love with spiritual gifts. He's going to contrast love with spiritual gifts in the first three verses, and then he's going to bring back that contrast in verse 8 uh, with an added wrinkle. And so we'll, we'll see all of that together. But uh, let's pray, and then we'll talk about context and all that fun stuff and, and get into it. Father, we confess this morning that many of us have come here not out of a desire to know you or meet with you, but out of routine. We thank you that you've brought us here by your spirit and by your grace. But we ask that you would forgive us of this sin. We ask that you would stir up within us those holy affections that draw our hearts and our minds to Christ and Him crucified. Pray that your Spirit would draw us out of ourselves and into loving one another. We confess, God, that we, we need you. 
that, that apart from you, we, we cannot do anything of any value. Help us to love you this morning. Use your word as kindling for our souls. Set our desires ablaze for you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so what, what often happens with 1 Corinthians 13 is it gets lifted up out of its context for weddings, uh, usually just weddings, or, or topical discussions about love. And those are good, that's fine, it's a beautiful chapter, and we'll kind of do that next week, as I mentioned earlier. But when you put it in its context, between chapters 12 and 14, within the flow of argument that, that's going on in 1 Corinthians, it, it, it isn't something that's sentimental or warm and fuzzy. Right? I think a lot of times that we come to this chapter for, to make ourselves feel good. <laughs> it's, it's about love, and, and that's wonderful. But, but really what's going on is Paul, it's almost like Paul is dumping a bucket of cold water onto a sleeping person. Steal their breath away. Because what he says is actually quite shocking. It's quite sobering. It's going to help the Corinthians to reevaluate once more their perspective on the spiritual gifts. And if you remember last week, he started off by answering their question, and I rephrased it this way, what does it mean to be spirit-filled or spiritual? And he said, well, the spirit-filled person is the person who confesses Jesus rightly, that lives that, as if Jesus is both Lord and Savior in their lives. It's the person that, that loves Jesus and submits themselves to Jesus. The same kind of person that's been made new by Jesus has been given the new gifting of the Spirit for the building up of the body of Jesus and is united to the church of Jesus. He said these people, these gifts have been given to you to serve one another. The spiritual person, the person who's following Jesus. The issue here is going to be the same. He's still dealing with spiritual gifts. And what the Corinthians have done, and I'll probably say this a bunch of times today, is they've taken the gifts and they've made them a way of evaluating your superiority or your inferiority. And so certain gifts meant that you were really special and really important. For them, it was particularly the gift of tongues. And that's made really evident in chapter 14, which we'll get to in a few weeks. So they're going, if I speak in tongues, then I have the best gift and everybody else, you know, you just kind of want the gift that I have. And instead of building up the church, which is the purpose of the gifts, they're tearing the church apart. The spiritual gifts are supposed to be like tools in the hands of the Corinthians to help encourage one another and exhort one another towards good deeds and love. And instead, they've become kind of like a jackhammer. They're just fracturing the church. We saw that the purpose of the gifts was to show the Spirit of God in each person for the common good. That's in 12, verse 7. It says, A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person. Everybody that's a Christian has a manifestation of the Spirit, has a spiritual gift, and it's given to them, not for themselves, we see, but for the common good. It's this idea that the gift exists for the good of the church and the glory of God that Paul is beginning to expound here. Right at the tail end of chapter 12, he's told them once more, you are the body of Christ, but no one is omni-gifted. Nobody has all the gifts. He has that 
series of rhetorical questions. Uh, are all apostles? Would they assume the answer? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Uh, do all prophesy? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. He's saying you need each other. But this is what you can do. Don't, don't try to desire the gifts of another person, but desire, verse 31, the greater gifts. And I'll show you an even better way. And this is where he, he gets into uh, chapter 13. And it's almost as if what he does in this chapter is he takes the Corinthians and he gets them into the waiting room to remind them what the Christian life is all about. To remind them that the Christian life is all about love. And he begins this way. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give my body over to the flames or in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So in, in verse 1 we see if I exercise this gift of tongues and I can speak in various languages of men or various languages of angels, but I don't have love, then I'm just an empty noisemaker. I'm annoying. Verse 2, if I have the gift of, of prophecy, if I understand all mysteries and, and all knowledge and I don't have, have love, I, I'm nothing. If I have all faith, so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Now, it's important on this particular one to note, this is not saving faith. Everybody recognizes that, that, that studies these things. This is a, a miraculous faith, right? That's what this, to move mountains is proverbial. It means to do something difficult or miraculous. And so what's in view here is this um, ability to go and see miraculous things done as a result of your great faith. But it's not, in ter it's not speaking in terms of salvation because we all have that gift of faith. It's by grace you have been saved and this not of yourself so that no one can boast. And it's God who creates that faith in us. And we know, and I've probably told you this many times as well, but it's worth repeating, it's not the amount of our faith that saves us or makes us right with God. It's the object of our faith. My favorite illustration for this is if I have all kinds of faith in myself that I believe I can fly, and, and, you know, I've got that Space Jam soundtrack going, and I get on my roof. I believe I can fly. And I get off the edge, and, and I jump, and I put my hand out like Superman, and I have all faith in my ability to fly. I'm still not going to fly. Because my, the object of my faith, which would be myself, has no ability to fulfill my hope of flying. On the other hand, if I have very little faith in the ability of an airplane to take me from Richmond to Orlando, I go, this is not going to work, there's no way, but I somehow, with the teeniest amount of faith, get on the airplane and sit down, I will find myself, if everything goes as it's supposed to, <laughs> in Orlando. Not because I had great faith in the aircraft, but because the object of my faith was able to bring about the hope of my faith. Or maybe a, a different analogy might work if you fall off a cliff and on your way down you see just this tiny little root shooting out from the cliff face. And you go, 
that's never going to hold me. I don't have any faith in it at all. And so you just don't grab it and you plummet to your death. Well, that didn't dictate if it was able to hold you or not. But let's say that it's strong enough to hold you and you decide with the littlest bit of faith, maybe it'll hold me, I need to grab onto something. And you reach out and you grab that root and because it's strong enough in this illustration to hold you, it holds firm. It doesn't hold firm based on your ability to believe that it's going to hold you, right? It doesn't matter the amount of faith you have in it to hold you. It's going to hold you based upon its strength, based upon its ability to bring about the hope of your faith. Likewise, it's not the amount of your faith that makes you right with God. It's the object of your faith. And when you put your faith, even the teeniest little amount of faith in Christ, you will be saved because he is able to deliver on his promises. He is able to bring about the hope of your faith, which is peace with God and a resurrection from the grave. And so we don't want to mix up this miraculous, spiritual, gifted, working faith that Paul's talking about with the faith that saves us and makes us right with God. Because it's not the amount of faith that saves, but the object of our faith. Still, don't miss what Paul is saying. If I have these various spiritual gifts and I have even the gift to do miraculous things, but have not love, I I am nothing. And so we see him contrasting love with these uh, really cool spiritual gifts in verse 1, in verse 2, and now in verse 3, he goes to something that's more normal to us, I guess, more ordinary. He says, if I give away all my possessions... And I give my body over to the flames or over in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. He's saying if I'm a great philanthropist, and I think of like Warren Buffett or uh, the Facebook guy who they give away billions with a B of dollars to charity and and human rights efforts, and that's, that's really good. But Paul's saying if they do it without love, it's insignificant. They gain nothing. Or if I give my body over to the flames, this is an idea of self-sacrifice that benefits them boasting somehow. So like if you could could take a bullet for somebody and then I guess boast, like did y'all see me take the bullet for so-and-so? I'm pretty awesome, right? If, if, If it becomes about me and I do it without love as the driving force behind it, I gain nothing. All of these gifts, all of these great activities add up to a big old zero if I don't have love. When I was in middle school, and I don't remember things well, Chelsea will tell you, but I remember this. I had a teacher that was, I'm going to say mean, but I also kind of respected her. What she would do is she would embed crucial information in the instruction portions of worksheets. Now, ain't nobody got time for that, all right? Like, I get a worksheet... I'm in middle school. I got things to do. I want to like talk to my friends or make a paper airplane, something important. And so, you know, I, I slap my name on that bad boy and fly through those questions. Um, I'll assume I answered them right. Uh, but what would happen is, is I would get zeros because uh, in those instructions would be embedded something along the lines of, put your name at the top of the paper. After you have put your name on the paper, do not put any other markings on the paper. If you put any other markings on the paper or answer any of the questions, you will receive a zero for failing to follow the instructions. And because I didn't read the instructions, I would end up with zeros. 
There was crucial information in those instructions. And Paul here is saying that there is some crucial information that you Corinthians have missed as it relates to spiritual gifts. If you use them without love, they matter not. It is interesting. Look, he doesn't say that the gift is worthless, but that he is, right? If I speak in tongues and, and I don't have love, it's the user that is the noisy gong or the clanging cymbal, the meaningless noise. It's the user in verse 2 that is nothing. I am nothing. It's the person that is exercising the gift in verse 3 that gains nothing. The, the gifts are good and fine. The problem isn't with the gifts, Corinthians. It's with you. This is similar to... Um, Chelsea will sometimes come to me with technological problems and often say things along the lines of, uh, she calls me Dragon, I don't know if you know that or not, it's going to come out. And so, uh, but, Dragon, my, my phone won't do X, Y, or Z. Something's wrong. And usually I'll take the phone and within a good 10 seconds be like, no, like, this is the problem, you just, you just didn't do it right. The problem's not with the phone, it's with the user. There, there's a user error and so the, the Corinthians have committed a user error as it relates to the gifts. They've been using the gifts to try and build up their own brand, to try and prove their superiority, rather than building up the body of Christ. And it results in nothing. To utilize the gifts without love is worthless. Any pattern of worship without love proves not the deficiency of the worship, but the deficiency of the worshiper. It proves, if you, if you do a spiritual activity without love, it proves your spiritual bankruptcy. Because love is the mark of a Christian. And, and Paul is saying quite, quite dramatically here, remember he believes the Corinthians are Christians, he said that in chapter 1, but, but he is very firmly saying, if you are using your gifts with yourself in mind rather than love for God and neighbor in mind, don't worry about who's more spiritual than somebody else. You all might not even know Jesus. A little cold water on the face. His, his point is similar to the point of the promise prophet Amos in chapter 5 of his book who writes this. This is God speaking to Israel. I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. The people of Israel are worshiping God without love in their hearts in that, passion, in that passage. They're going after other things. And God says about loveless worship, I hate it. Like, shut up is the message of that passage in Amos. 
Stop it. Because loveless worship is worthless worship. It's a lie. You maybe hear the Corinthians going, wait a minute, we've been using these gifts, Paul. Don't you, don't you know that we have prophesied really well? Don't you know that we get together and we go to church all the time? Don't you know we, we've been reading our Bibles, that, that we're involved in, another, one, in one another's lives? Don't you know that, that we pray all the time? And you can almost, if you're like me when I was thinking about this, you can hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 to the Pharisees. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Loveless worship is worthless. Where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. We cannot honor God when our hearts are far from Him. See this again in Matthew 15. Jesus says, Hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching his doctrines, human commands. I think maybe we could paraphrase this to, to fit it into Corinthians. This people honor me with their gifts, but their heart is far from me. We cannot honor God if our hearts are far from them. Far from them. Far from Him. So let me ask you Do you love Jesus? Do you participate in worship and in prayer and in Bible reading in a way that is loveless? Here's my fear. Most of you just answered to that, no. But the answer isn't no because you're doing it with love. The answer is no because you simply, you just don't read your Bible all that much. And so you don't have to worry about doing it lovelessly because you don't do it at all. You, know, you got 10 different translations and coffees at home and they just sit on the coffee table and look good and gather dust. You should read your Bible. It's a very basic spiritual discipline. But you should do it not to machine through the pages like a college student with an assignment, but because you love God. And he's spoken to you there. And you want to you meet with him. You should come to this gathering, not because it's a part of your regular routine or you feel like that's what Christians must do, but because it's what you get to do. That you can't wait to encourage one another, be encouraged by other Christians, and give glory to God in song and in praise. God doesn't want your loveless worship. It's as the man who gets flowers for his anniversary and goes to his wife and says, I got you these flowers because I had to because it's our anniversary. Right? Like, 
Shorty's just not going to be down with that. She's just not going to like it. She wants you to bring flowers, yes, but because they're an expression of your love for her. And, and God is saying, you, you must come and worship me. You must worship me in your gathering. You must worship me in your Bible reading. You must worship me with your spiritual gifts, but not that kind of must. Right? It's not, it's not the uh, going to bed and, you know, I ask my wife, you know, do I need to kiss you before you go to sleep? And she says, you must, but not that kind of must. Right? What she means is, uh, 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 she doesn't want me to kiss because I have to, but because I want to. Because that's where my heart is. Is your worship loveless? Do you love Jesus? I have to believe at least some of you do, uh, at least love his word because you sit through long sermons week after week. We need to evaluate ourselves. We need to evaluate our hearts because what happens in conversion is significant. God takes my dead heart out and puts a living, beating heart in. A heart that's filled with the Spirit rather than myself. He breathes new life into my lungs and He gives me new affections for Him. And yes, sometimes those affections cool, but our feelings are not just our feelings. When I'm talking about our desire for God changing, I mean an inclination of the will that goes from being bent in on me and being bent towards God. So that sometimes maybe I don't feel like coming to church. Maybe I, I don't feel like reading my Bible, but I do it because underneath all of that, I go, I love God. And this is a way I can express my love for him. This is a way I can rekindle my passion, rekindle my affection. Friends, don't, don't let the, the, the music and the, the poetry and the romance of your relationship with God, don't let it die. Pursue it. Pursue love. Because without love, it's meaningless. Love is the mark, it's the distinguishing mark of the Christian. Jesus says, this is how the world will know, I'm paraphrasing, will know that you are my disciples, not by your great spiritual gifts, but by your love for one another. The world will know that you are Christians, not because you attend church, but because you love one another. Because the best expression of our love for God is our love for one another. It's tangible and, and practical. That's why we covenant together here as a church. There's a way to evaluate, am I being loving? Am I loving my neighbor? Paul continues to show us this contrast between love and gifts down in chapter 8. Continues to show us that love is what gives the gifts their value. And now he's going to further argue for the supremacy of love on the basis of its eternality. Look at verse 8. Love never ends. You know, lo love is not like a, 
uh, leaf on a tree that turns brown in the fall and withers and then drops to the ground to be forgotten. It stays forever green and magnificent. Love never ends. It always flourishes. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. Now, all knowledge isn't going to come to an end because if it did, we would have no way of knowing it. Right? Talking about the spiritual gift of knowledge comes to an end. Verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. Do you remember learning how to ride a bike? I do. My cousin taught me at my grandma's house way back when. Uh, but, but when you're learning to ride a bike, there's typically a process. You got the training wheels, and then usually you have a, a teacher that you know, keeps their hand on your back, and they tell you how you're going to keep your balance and what the steps are. And then there comes a wonderful day uh, when the training wheels come off, and the teacher's hand comes off of your, off of your back. And all of a sudden, you're riding the bike. Now, once you're riding the bike, you don't go back to the training wheels or the trainer because their purpose has been fulfilled. Likewise, spiritual gifts exist to show the Spirit of God in us. God shows himself in us as we love one another, and as he shows himself in us, as we love one another, the result of this is the growing up of the church. Spiritual gifts show the Spirit and grow the church. But once perfection comes, their purpose is ended. What, what the perfection coming or the completeness coming or the wholeness coming is all of God's purposes in the redeeming work of Jesus. This is a, a shout out to the return of Christ. Paul is saying when Jesus comes back, we won't need these spiritual gifts to tell us about him anymore because he'll be here. You can think of it like uh, if you're having somebody over to your house and they've never been there before, what do you do? It's at nighttime. Is, is you turn the light on. Right? We'll leave the light on the porch here. You'll see it. But if somebody's coming to your house and they've never been there before and it's during the day, do you turn the light on to help them find it? No, that, that would be redundant. But what, what Paul is saying is when the sun rises, all other lights go out. And so the lights of the spiritual gifts that are meant to teach us about God and show us about God, when the sun rises, when Christ returns, their purpose has been fulfilled. They will cease. They will come to an end. He continues in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. Now, in part, what's going on here in this analogy, I think there's two kind of pieces to it. The first piece is that we see this idea that from going to immaturity to maturity, from incompletion to completion, right? So we see again that uh, this idea that... Um, as Gordon Fee argues, that as children you can use the gifts and that's good and right, but when you become mature, when maturity arrives, when Christ arrives, you won't need them anymore. And I think that there's kind of that flavor on it, uh, but I think more so what's going on here is Paul is 
using this motif of immaturity, I don't want to say to insult, uh, but to correct the Corinthians. He used it way back in chapter 3. He told them that they were immature and that they needed to wise up. That they had the wisdom of God, but they needed to come into maturity and start actually using the wisdom of God. Because what they had done was they'd been immature and dependent upon the wisdom of the world. And I think likewise here in context, they've continued to evaluate the basis of a person's goodness or their supremacy on the basis of spiritual gifts. So whoever has the best gift is uh, more important. And what Paul is saying, you need to stop thinking like children. Because Christian maturity, when perfection comes, when the mature Christian life comes, will be expressed in love, which does not end. He says, if you're after Christian maturity, pursue love. Stop being so self-focused, so self-centered. Right? This is the difference between a child and, and an adult. Is, is children are very short-sighted, and they're very selfish. Uh, if you've ever had a baby, I haven't had a baby, but you know what I mean. If you've ever been around an infant and its mother... Uh, the infant doesn't care if it's three in the morning and mom has not slept in two weeks and it just ate two and a half hours ago. It's hungry and so it is going to scream and cry, feed me! It's time! It's all about me! And Paul is saying, it's not all about you. It's not all about you. You need to broaden your mind. You need to move from thinking all about me to thinking about we. To stop thinking about how you can build up yourself, build up your own brand, and start thinking about how you can build up the church. Start thinking about how you can bring glory to God. It's, um, it's as if he's, again, rebuking those envious folks in verse 15 and 16. The foot that says, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. I don't matter because I don't have this gift. He's saying, no, 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 you matter. Recognize what God has done in you and fulfill your role. Don't desire enviously someone else's. Or the arrogant eye in verse 21 that says, I don't need you. The eye can't see its need for someone else. He's saying, no, no, you, you need other people. Don't be so foolish. Don't be so short-sighted. Don't be so self-centered. You need each other. You have a part to play for the common good, for the building up of the body. I have two hands. I think everybody here does too as well. And I like them both. But my left hand gets this really awesome privilege. It gets to wear my wedding ring. That's fancy. Now my right hand, I, I use it for all kinds of things. I'm right-handed. And so writing and throwing a baseball or shooting a basketball or, or whatever else. My left hand should not get jealous of my right hand and be like, well, because I can't write, I don't matter. Might as well chop me off. My right hand shouldn't get jealous of my left hand like, I don't get to wear all that jewelry. I don't get to be adorned and look beautiful. Just get used all the time. I better just chop me off. No, I, I want to keep both of my hands. Both of my hands are necessary to the flourishing of my body. They're both necessary. And, and the point I'm trying to make is, Whatever role or gift that God has given to you to play in the church, it's absolutely necessary. It's different probably, but it's necessary. There's been a manifestation of the Spirit given to you for the common good, for the building up of the body 
of Christ. And how you best build up the body of Christ is through love. It doesn't matter what gift you have. What matters is that you are using your gift as an expression of your love for God and for one another. Verse 12. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Imagine with me a woman whose husband is fighting in World War II and has gone off to battle. She doesn't know when or if he will return, but she keeps a faded picture of him in a locket that hangs around her neck. And so every day, multiple times throughout the day, she she pops that locket open and stares at the picture of her husband, longing for his return. Then then one day, she has finished her work and, and she's pointed her rocking chair toward the sunset and she catches the glimpse of a silhouette in the distance. She recognizes immediately who it is. And so, without a moment to spare, she leaps up from her chair. She's had the picture grasped in her hand. And she runs to meet her husband. And as she slings her arm around his neck to lock him in an embrace, the picture falls from her hand to the ground. And she puts both hands on his face and looks at him and recognizes, he's real, he's really here. Tears stream down both their faces. She's not worried about the picture because the reality has arrived. The reality is far greater than the picture. And now we, we, we see Jesus in his, in his word and in, in the gospel proclaimed and in our expression of spiritual gifts and love to one another. But when he returns, we shall see him face to face in his fullness physically. And that is far better. It's far better. When the sun rises, the lights go out. Right now, we we use all of these various gifts and and graces that God has given to us to help us to remember and love Jesus. All of these things are meant to teach us to remember that, that Jesus went to war for us to conquer our sin by laying down his life on our behalf. But he didn't stay dead. He resurrected and He sits at the Father's side waiting for the fullness of time when He will return and make all things new. Right now, He waits in His great patience so that more and more might have the opportunity to see these lights of our gifts, these lights of our love, these lights of the gospel proclaimed so that they might see these things and believe in Him. That they might catch a glimpse of His glory in the here and now. That they might taste and see that He is good. And enjoy a little bit of heaven in the present. 
friends, when we love one another, we are bringing a piece of the future into the now. It's lasting. It's eternal. It's supreme to these gifts that will fade away because it will continue on. Now these three remain after all else has been eclipsed. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I think love is considered the greatest because it's the quality which God himself displays, quite simply. But I do think all three continue on into eternity. There will never be a day in eternity where we don't need to trust in God completely, delight in him as our joy. There's not going to be a day in heaven where we're not hoping for the future. Like, like heaven is not going to be this really static and lame, sitting on a cloud and stroking a harp kind of existence. It's going to be an endless adventure with an infinitely increasing amount of glories. It's going to be a never-ending story that is always thrilling us, causing us to more deeply love and appreciate the God who has made us and has reconciled himself to us through Christ. And so we will look forward to each new day in heaven in a way that is not like our hope even now. There are very few, very few things that we can hope in and know that they're going to happen, say for the return of Christ. In heaven, we'll get to know. Like God's going to be like, this is what we're going to do, or this is what you can do. And we look forward to it and, and know that it's going to happen. So to summarize, Paul's point here in chapter 13 is that this idea of showing spiritual one-upmanship on the basis of your spiritual gifts is really silly. If you want to live a mature Christian life, concern yourself not with that which is temporary and will fade, but with that which is eternal. Mature right now. Become a loving Christian right now because love is the mark of a true Christian. It's what animates the entirety of the Christian life. And so friends, I want to ask you, are you loving? Do you love God and his people? And I want to encourage you this morning to be the church and to love God and love his people. Let's pray. Father, help us to love one another. Help us to love you. It is it's so easy to succumb to the sickness of sin. We thank you that we are free from its power and from its penalty, but God, it, it is still present at this point in time in us. Still pulls on our hearts and whispers in our ears that we ought to worship ourselves rather than you. God, help us to be about the business of killing sin. Putting to death that which is earthly in us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might pursue you in love. 
God, we pray that you would do this in us. That you would be the fountain of life welling up within us. That the waters of your love would be so lavishly springing forth in our souls that that love you have for us would pour out of us and into the lives of others. Teach us what it means to truly love. Help us to desire you above all else and to cling to Christ. God, you are glorious and we praise you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.